Malcolm Holine is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of major American Jewish organizations, joins us for the weekly update on this Friday morning. <clears throat> Mr. Holine, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. Good morning, Malcolm. I appreciate that very much. Thanks for joining us. So a couple of things, a couple of plugs I'd like your help with, frankly. I don't know if you've had a chance to see it. Uh, it is uh, one of the most um, fabulous exhibits I have seen um, uh, over the years, and I'm referring to the Museum of Jewish Heritage, uh, the exhibit about the Eichmann capture and the Eichmann trial. It is on display at the Museum of Jewish Heritage downtown Manhattan for another few weeks. It is <laughs> Malcolm, and, I, and I, I'm sure you know a lot more about this episode than I do, but it is just unbelievable when you see up close and personal what the Israeli government, or more specifically their secret agencies, did in order to capture and then, of course, in order to try and then eventually execute Adolf Eichmann. Just amazing. The true story is an amazing one. I've spoken to some of the people who were, who were involved, wow. Peter Malkin being primary amongst them, um, and to, to the children of some of the others, the people involved in the trial, uh, the Eichmann trial. Uh, it, it's true that uh, at the time I was so fascinated by it, I saved all the clippings from yeah. the on you know, the daily reports about it. Uh, you know, it was the last major trial after the Shoah. There have been other trials, but none of the high-ranking, as high-ranking a Nazi. Uh, although perhaps now we know that more survived than people thought. Right. There were all sorts of nefarious networks that involved major institutions, religious and otherwise political, that yep. helped them escape it. It's one of the points of the exhibit, by the way. And and that that I think is one of the reasons you know you, you ask and uh, you know again it, it may sound like a silly question because why in fact you know would would the state of Israel not be interested in finding him and uh, and trying him but it, it was such in addition to the justice and legal aspect to it it was such an important episode for an entire generation and maybe we would say generations of Jews to. To have this, you know, real and symbolic uh, activity or act of uh, of justice take place. So was that it wasn't just that you know they were bringing him to justice. There were so many of them, as described in the in the exhibit, and and it was so rampant that it was it was I believe the way I saw it, uh, somewhat if it's possible to say this, somewhat soothing or psychologically helpful that he was brought to justice. And it embodied for many of the survivors and others, you know, a sense of uh, of, of closure, of coming together. Right. But the fact is that um, we didn't know then, and we probably still don't know now, uh, how far the network extended and how many were brought to the United States yeah. by uh, the CIA, help others, you know, to be fight the Russians, they brought yeah. Nazis, uh, rocket experts, others who, who would and should have faced um, more crimes challenges. Yeah, no question about it. All right, and the other plug I wanted you to help me with, uh, we had her on the air this week, Nitsana Darshan Leitner. Uh, the book is Harpoon. It is unbelievable. I mean, it is, uh, it's everything you've told us. It's everything you've told us about the financial end of the, of the terror organizations. And, you know, I, as a casual observer of all of this, uh, I said to her, and I've always thought, frankly, based on our conversations, that, that the volunteerism of terrorists is an important factor. It's like, you know, sort of balance between the fact that you have a lot of people willing to give their lives and to operate in an arena like that, you know, at no cost, so to speak, or at no price. And at the same time, obviously, you need some type of financial infrastructure. But after reading her book, it, it, it's all about the money. 
It's a, you know the, the more they can finance, the more they can kill people around the world. It's unbelievable. And, and, and even when I read and I asked her about this, that the 2014 Gaza War, we keep, or I kept thinking that it ended when Israel decided to finally remember the ground initiative and to sort of you know go in and take care mm-hmm. take care of matters. But it, the, the, it was it was really the money and the, and the incinerating of the of you know one of their big bases of cash that ended up uh, you know silencing the enemy. So, there was millions of dollars that was supposed to go to pay the terrorists right. that was incinerated, but. Uh, you're right that people don't understand that, and that's why to this week's passage by the House Foreign Relations Committee of the Taylor Force Act to cut off the money, perhaps hundreds of millions of dollars to the PA, Palestinian Authority, if they continue to provide the subsidies, the grants, the money to, to terrorists, and the more they kill, the more they get, and to their families. I think it's it's more than critical that this pass the whole House and, and uh, Senate and become the law, and hopefully other countries uh, will follow suit. There are some Europeans who are already cutting back and withholding money uh, when they, they name buildings for terrorists and stuff. Uh, that uh, that th- these steps are, are essential, and once you understand, and I know the story Harpoon is, is really remarkable, and I'm sure will make a great movie one day. Yeah. But uh, the story behind it is, is what's really important about where the money's coming from, yep. and and how is it allocated, how it's used. And if not for 9-11, the interest of the United States to assist in all of this, inclu- including, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, choking the, uh, uh, you know, off the money trail and things like that would be almost non-existent. It was, it was only when the United States was directly attacked that, they, that their interest was peaked in terms of fighting terrorism. Right, and for, you know, 60 years, it was yeah. Israel's problem. Right. Terrorism, and now all of a sudden, and if the world had responded to to the challenge in Israel, uh, that, that we might not face the networks that we face, and if they had learned the lessons from it, which doesn't appear apparent today, when we see what's being allowed to happen in in Syria and elsewhere, that uh, the whole world pays the price for it. Yeah. All right, since I'm on a roll, give me a chance for two more plugs. Uh, yeah, you weren't here last week, so I, you know there's so much I got to tell you. I got I got to catch up with you. So, Doctor uh, Professor Alevi was here yesterday, and I said to him, you know, when this earthquake happened on the Iran-Iraq border, did it cross your mind that you know what a shame that Israel can't provide emergency services as they so often do in natural disasters? And I said to him, it's one of the first things I thought of, and he certainly he also said it's one of the first things he thought of, and I bet you thought of it as well. Israel's here ready to assist, you know, distraught people at anywhere around the world. And, of course, their offer, you know, to the uh, to Iran, uh, you know, it goes uh, uh, without acknowledgement. So I just, uh, you know, Israel's in a position now to help everywhere. And, and there are people who would rather their people suffer and die than have Israelis come in and try to help in the rescue effort. And it was absolutely rejected in, in uh, right. totality. And the um, uh, we understand why, and I think that the prime minister... Uh, was serious because there are other instances where Israel did render assistance uh, in Muslim and other countries right. uh, that were claiming that they weren't taking aid from Israel, and you could see the uh, Mug and David on the Al planes flying right behind them as they were saying it on television. <laughs> and you know, we pointed out some of these pictures. I mean, it was really it was one foreign minister who was uh, doing an interview, and he was standing like on a balcony, and literally behind it. You could see the mug and dove on the tail of an LL plane that is sitting there unloading uh, goods that they were bringing. Unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. And one last thing you got to. 
you know, last night, uh, late last night, I'm in a conversation with somebody about the modern Jewish history. We talked about the Six Day War, how everybody felt, and you know, it's no secret that the whole Jewish world felt like this was, you know, obviously quite a significant event. And uh, and you know, for those of us who believe in the eventuality of what's going to happen in this world, um, in terms of uh, the Jewish uh, world's leadership, you know, going forward, and I think most people know what I'm alluding to. Uh, you know, it was such a significant event, etc. I, I think there's certain things going on right now that all of us have to stop and understand how significant these events are. When the Prime Minister of Israel declares publicly, and, and, and frankly, I was a little surprised that, that that this was publicly, that you know it discusses the letters of um, of support and praise that he's getting from the leader of China and the leader of Russia, whom he calls a, a another friend, and the leader of Japan. And uh, and now you know uh, warming up the uh, relationship with India it is just unbelievable. As you live through it, we sometimes don't realize how slowly but surely Israel is enjoying such an incredible leadership position in this world. And I'm not even talking about the economy and the reports we're getting about what the shekels value is now. And 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 I think as we live through it, all of us in every generation that's tuned in, as we live through it, we must recognize how significant this is. If you remember the Six Day War and how we felt and the euphoria after that. Thank God there wasn't a war now, but slowly but surely, because of these warming ties, relationships, and diplomatic actions, it, it seems that we're in an extremely significant period of time. So I have spoken many times on the show about and, and gave uh, in, in reports about these kind of developments, and I know that people don't see them as highly significant when you see individual accounts of, of the visits, and especially when President, uh, uh, Prime Minister Modi of India, the second largest Muslim country in the world, came to Israel. And this is a debunking of one of the two big myths. One is that Israel will be isolated and therefore will never be able to survive because it will be alone, when in fact not only are all of these major con- countries dealing with Israel and respecting Israel as a peer, even though they still, like Russia, do things against Israel's interests, but also the Arab countries. And that's what's really underpinning some of these stories is because of the reports of of Saudi Arabia um, uh, being more open and articles appearing in in the Saudi press and uh, accusations by Iran that Saudi Arabia is directing Israel against Lebanon and that they're in cahoots and um, coming up with all sorts of uh, uh, fake reports about about associations and there are real uh, ev- there's real evidence of uh, some breakthroughs. We shouldn't um, over we shouldn't exaggerate it. We shouldn't overestimate its significance because these things can change in a minute. Right. But the idea that Israel would be isolated has now been put to rest. And the second thing is about the demographic. Uh, imbalance will always grow against Israel, and that if Israel doesn't make sacrifices, if Israel doesn't take certain actions, they will be overwhelmed. When, in fact, now we know that the birth rate amongst Jews is the highest in the OECD, and the Organization uh, for Economic Development Cooperation, and in Mexico is the next at 2.2. Israel is 3.1. The United States, France, Britain, and others are under 2. 2.1 is replacement. And there is a, a remarkable phenomenon, and I've spoken about this for a while, because, and I just observed it uh, without any evidence of any study, but I kept hearing from people telling me that, oh, we have three children, we have four children, and it always was two children when you spoke to Israelis. And now there, there is a quiet revolution amongst non-Haredi sectors, 
not even even non-orthodox sectors, that they are uh, having more children. The the it's I think a statement of confidence in the future. I think it's a very important declaration on the part of Israelis going against the whole trend of of the more advanced societies that they have um, uh, larger families and the Arab families are going down. The Palestinian family birth rate going down. So again, another myth that is being debunked because it's it, the assertions and predictions are part of some uh, about what the demographic realities would be. It's not to say that that uh, it should be ignored and we have to continue to to look at the facts. But these are two of the major arguments that were used against governments of Israel, against policies that I think have been uh, put aside for now. Yeah, hop aboard the Israel train, otherwise it's going to leave the station without you. I'm telling you, the Prime Minister has been emphasizing this message, and all of us have to understand the significance of it. It is America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program, heard on listener-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NachumSiegel.com, on the NachumSiegel Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. Malcolm Holmline is with us. He's Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. All right, Malcolm, it's no secret why at least half the people have tuned in this morning. They want to hear about this peace plan. Out of nowhere, it seems, you could tell us, in fact, if it was out of nowhere or if it was uh, uh, somewhat less of a surprise than we think. Uh, all of a sudden, the United States administration is very anxious, at least according to media reports, to uh, restart the peace process and to come up with a plan, with their own plan, come up with their own plan to implement in the Middle East. What could you tell us about this? Well, I don't know much because I don't know how much there is to be known. They, they, and what is being done is being held pretty close to the chest. Uh, there's clearly an effort underway, and we're told that before the end of the year, perhaps even in a couple of weeks, that, that, that something will be put forward that would uh, help jumpstart talks. But they have said repeatedly that they will not impose a solution, that they're not going to dictate one. And this is, this is uh, not to be the outcome, but to be the basis for uh, discussions. And, of course, the Palestinians already attacked it and saying it's too pro-Israel. Um, and it may well be that they will do uh, Arab first rather than Arab last uh, approach meaning that the Arab states will start to recognize or get involved with Israel, make certain um, gestures towards Israel, not as a reward for the signing of the deal at the end, because that could may never come, but to start doing it at the beginning, for instance, overflight rights, which would be very important for Israel economically, if they could fly to the Far East over countries, it would sh- shave two hours flying time, make it more competitive, but many other things that could be done that would be... Uh, um, significant for for israel second the um uh, the, the the nature of the of the process is being based on negotiations discussions that they are having with uh, people in the region and outside and we'll, we'll wait and see what what actually emerges from this but i i think that the fundamentals is is different than let's say under the obama administration which is not to come with a finished pr- uh, proposal to impose on the parties but to give the parties some platform for uh, negotiation. It's funny because the media is reporting it as if it's the former, that it is an, an arrangement that the American administration officials will, in fact, draw up and then, you know, impose. I don't know if they use the word impose, but certainly one that was similar to that, uh, impose on the different parties. Well, I don't think the people involved are, are uh, going to go along with that. I think that um, um, I have the faith in, in most of them that they will will. Uh, take the approach that I outlined. They, they have said so. 
there are others, of course, who who want to instigate against it from from both the left and the right. That um, uh, negotiations might hurt, uh, might help Netanyahu politically and hurt their chances internally in the political situation in Israel, which, as you know, is in turmoil right now. Uh, Israel faces many challenges. We have the Hezbollah in the north. Uh, there's a lot of talk about war in the north. I don't believe there will be one. Do you think but, this? Did you think this peace announcement uh, took the prime minister by surprise? The peace announcement of that, you know, this potential deal or whatever the U.S. officials going to be drawing up. You think it took? There the, is no potential deal yet, and the, it's not a deal. I think it is a platform. Is the only term I can think of. The American administration goes public and says we are drawing up a plan to bring to the yeah. Middle East. We are now going to solve the Middle East problem. That's essentially what they said this week. Right. So did that did that announcement it doesn't work if they're going but to did that announcement, something. But did that announcement ta- um, take the Israeli administration by surprise? No, because they knew that, I mean, they've been involved in the discussion, so I don't think anybody's surprised by it. But again, I think we shouldn't interpret it incorrectly because they have said clearly that, that, that their intent is not to, to impose something. Uh, and I don't even think, it, you know, it went as far as some of the frameworks, but we'll go as far as some of the frameworks. It is a, a, pl- a platform, and I think it, it puts down so, it will put down some fundamental markers. Look, we may not like it all. We may, um, neither side will, will, yeah, I, will I, ever I, likes I, it all in negotiations. I get that, but you know, you know where, where I think uh, the disconnect is? I think that the, you know the pro-Israel crowd, or those who are suspicious of land for peace deals. Let's put it that way. Uh, I think we we felt that we finally had somebody in the White House who understood truly that Israel has no peace partner, that there's no one to negotiate with, and that that's where everything has to start from, with the recognition that there's really no one on the other side that Israel can trust. And this announcement this week sort of you know avoids that whole issue and and gives the impression. That there are now two parties that we can deal with and make an arrangement with. I, I did not read it that way, and I think uh, we have to wait and see. It's it's uh, people jump to conclusions and try and interpret what people say. I, I still believe that this should be done quietly and behind the scenes, working with the parties, working with Israel. It is clear that there's a lot of ongoing consultation with the prime minister, who is also the foreign minister and also minister of many other things, um, and and the discussions are going on uh, with them. Uh, I have spoken to Israeli officials this week about it. They do not seem concerned. At least they, they have told me that they aren't concerned and they don't think it's moving that direction. We, we'll see what, what will come out, and then we'll, we'll uh, deal with it. But I, it, it is not something that is just being dropped on them. There have been endless discussions, the visits, uh, ongoing visits. There's a delegation of the National Security Council in Israel now working on the uh, U.S.-Russian agreement in Syria. There are others, uh, other uh, agreements. I mean, there are some things uh, that have been said that people might find disturbing, but the, the truth is that we have not seen any outline, anything else, and we should not jump to conclusions before we know the facts. Where is Lebanon's prime minister? He is in Saudi Arabia. Why is that? A vacation. <laughs> he was called to Riyadh, correct? <laughs> the beaches. He was he, called he, to Riyadh. He was called to Riyadh, and while in Riyadh, he resigned. Hariri, uh, he is leaving, and he's going to go to Paris now. Uh, and for the resignation really to take hold, he has to go to Lebanon and deliver it. And I think he, he has said that he thought his life was threatened. There are people question that, what the real motive was, is enforced by the... Um, 
uh, Saudis. Um, they feel he was getting too close to the Iranians. They, they, they are the Saudis have put a tremendous focus on Hezbollah and and in Lebanon, and seeing Iran taking over Lebanon is very disturbing to them as it is to Israel. And well, if another you- evidence of a common agenda emerging. Between the, the Israel and Saudi Arabia, Israel and others. If Hezbollah was always the proxy and continues to be of Iran in Lebanon, then the Lebanese government was a proxy of who? Of Saudi Arabia? Was was this say? Were they always aligned with Saudi Arabia? They were close. The Saudis gave them a lot of money. The Saudis supported them. The, uh, the regime. I think that they felt Hariri was and maybe perhaps not strong enough and and uh, yielding to it. Uh, Hezbollah has clearly taken over. It is the dominant force in in uh, uh, Lebanon today. Uh, we see that the Hezbollah's role in Syria as uh, at one of the the fronts for Iran, uh, a major front, played a big role in the conflict. Continue to play a role. Uh, they probably have six to eight thousand troops still in Syria, but they are are also trying to reestablish and and take advantage of the situation in Lebanon to extend their um, their hold. It's, you know, they have more than a hundred thousand missiles. They have in every third house in in uh, southern Lebanon is filled with rockets and other material. Israelis can identify them by pointing them out to people who visit in in the Golan. And Iran today is recruiting in Syria Shiite. Um, uh, young people to to create a Hezbollah in Syria and space yeah. in Dara, that's just 30 kilometers from from Israel. There are um, uh, th- th- this militia battalion is, is being formed. It's in Israel, which is in the Dara government. People remember Dara, where a lot of fighting and other things took place. They call this unit the 313 Brigade because there's supposed to be 313. Uh, people, company, soldiers accompanying the Mahdi, the, the Shiite Messiah, when he comes. There you go. And, and this is, uh, you know, they are expanding their activities, and because of the permission granted by the West and by the by the Russians and everybody, it's, it's entrenching the Iranian role there. And they are looking now, and, and there was a very interesting interview that's very important that was done for the first time in a Saudi newspaper by the Israeli chief of staff, the head of the IDF. Wow. Gabi Eisenkot gave an extensive interview, and he spoke there about the common interests of Saudi Arabia, and specifically in Lebanon. They talked about these different circumstances, but uh, he also noted, you know, I've often talked about the Shiite Crescent that King Abdullah spoke about, about right. what the goal was, is of Iran, which they are establishing, of having a continuous uh, Shiite territory from Iran through Iraq, through Syria, to Lebanon, which is one of the concerns that uh, Saudi Arabia has. But he also spoke of the second one, going from Bahrain to the Red Sea through, and through Yemen, and that this is part of the hegemonic drive of, of Iran. And the, we see how they are establishing themselves using these militias in, uh, in Syria. Uh, I don't understand why the Russians feel comfortable with this arrangement, although they supposedly agreed with the United States that they would keep them away directly from the Golan. But 30 kilometers is nothing, and, and the fact that you have uh, these forces, and they're always trying to encroach more and more. There is a Shiite revival going on in in Syria and elsewhere, and they've replaced Sunni populations. So the um, the, the defeat of ISIS has fueled this messianic uh, almost the fervor, and that they feel that they can win everything. And they, they the Iran is taking advantage. They maybe have two hundred or more already in this uh, unit. But they have tens of thousands of militia who came from Lebanon, Afghanistan, right. Iraqis, and others. 
So just and, going back for a second, the 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 reason that Iran doesn't care that Saudi Arabia is making decisions vis-a-vis the destruction that will come because of it in inside Gaza, and Israel will respond quickly if they try to do, if they continue the rocket attacks or try to cross the border, as they say they are, that they have other tunnels and they're working on it in Israel is continuing to develop its counter-tunnel strategy and putting the underground fence in and, right. and sensors, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, 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 yeah. Pardon me? Yeah, no, okay, go ahead, yes. I'm, I didn't that, mean to interrupt. I just got to go up north for a second, but go ahead. Yeah, but, but it's related. So Israel has two fronts. One is that they're looking at this, and right now they have not retaliated because of that and because they, Hamas wants the uh, reconciliation deal to go through so they get the PA to take over responsibility, and you know if there's a conflict, that thing is dead. Uh, okay, so and then in the north, you have Israel building up its forces and developing the whole region. They have tremendous intelligence. Right, but who, did you, but who did you blame earlier in this conversation for the Iranian forces uh, settling uh, too close to the Israeli border? Who's to blame for that? Who allowed it to happen? Well, I think that the Russia-U.S. agreement did not go far enough in protecting. So, can Israel's we can we blame the, can we blame the United States for it for not having Israel's back on that? In the United States, as I said, the NSC is there now, representatives of the National Security Council, to talk about the deal, to talk about steps that they're taking. I don't think U.S. abandoned Israel. Well, abandoned is a strong word. I do think, as I said, that they did not do enough in the agreement, and that. Uh, we see that Iran is consolidating its position all the time in uh, Syria and elsewhere, but particularly regarding Syria and the fact that, you know, being 30 kilometers away is nothing. And that the real danger we face there is that, as I said, nobody really wants a war, an all-out war today. Iran, because they have too big an investment, Hezbollah doesn't want to take the brunt of this and knows that Israel will obliterate them this time, that the wow. the danger is an errant missile. And when you're so close... And there's constant attempts, and we know that Hezbollah's goal is to try and infiltrate Israel, to plant the flag, to show that they can um, penetrate, so that you can have, again, an escalation of minor incidents or not all-out war, which uh, Israel will not accept. Uh, but that's why they have to be far away from the Jordanian and Israeli borders, why you know they don't want to see a permanent uh, presence of foreign troops, and particularly Iran. And unless the agreement and any final outcome uh, removes them, the problem is that they are now establishing all of these uh, militia groups, which will say, well, it's not us. These are Shiite militia groups. These are people who live there because they replaced the Sunni population with Shiites. Then uh, Iran will say, well, they can remain, even if there is an agreement to remove, quote, foreign troops. But that's not going to be acceptable to Israel. And finally, what did we learn this week from the most recent IAEA report? Very little, again, except that they are still not going into all the sites that they should. Uh, this is the eighth report of the IAEA, and the, the, um, uh, there, is, there are things in there that, that are of concern, but uh, we see that Fordo, we see the, the um, other facilities, they're talking about a new light water plant, which was not known before. And I spoke to, to one of the uh, IEA former inspectors, and, and spoke, he spoke very critically about that. Uh, so, again, Iran is, is taking advantage of, of the uh, opportunity, the breakout time that they themselves say uh, they have. The fact that Fordo is still functioning, that other facilities... Uh, may, may be functioning uh, as well, and this is uh, this is why the deal is criticized so much. Why the feeling about the sunset clause? We see the French, by the way, are pressing very hard about 
the missile, the, the violations of the missile agreement, which they say violates UN Security Council Resolution 2231. And at the same time, Germany is signing more deals, wants to do more economically with them. So are others uh, signing deals. And the United States uh, has to rank, r- ratchet up the sanctions uh, all the time because uh, c- companies facing the choice of doing business with Iran or the United States have a very easy choice uh, if they want if they want to function in in, uh, in the future but britain is releasing 527 million dollars which came out of a disputed arms deal in the 70s because they want to get the release of uh, somebody from the reuters foundation uh, miss radcliffe money goes to iran the government of iran i mean it's unbelievable. now that i've read that book i mean <laughs> it's, it's it's suicide giving that kind of money to them is suicide of course, it's five hundred million dollars more that goes in cash for 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 uh, for terrorists and and um, half a billion uh, and dollars. Also, to note the German court, uh, because of a case of lawfare project initiated here in in Europe, ruled that Kuwait Airlines was uh, had a legitimate stance in its refusal to accept an Israeli passenger. They said they weren't arguing on the merit of of what they did, but. That the you know they would suffer inordinate consequences. There were back in Kuwait if they took an Israeli passenger, that there would be economic or others they could go on trial, and so it was an inordinate punishment if they if they um, accepted him. Mm. And I mean, this is so outrageous, such a decision that a German court. Uh, could reach this kind of a conclusion uh, about a blatant discrimination. I mean, it, you, you think about it in American terms and civil rights terms about, uh, you know, with uh, equal accommodation or uh, barring people from, from public uh, uh, transportation of any kind. And so Kuwait Airlines is barred from the United States because of this and in other European countries. But the German court's ruling is, is very disturbing, I find. Why should we expect otherwise? All right, Malcolm, uh, assuming uh, everyone's available, we uh, are planning at the moment to reconvene next Friday. Thanks. With the turkey. With the turkey Thanksgiving weekend Friday. Any, any changes will inform the audience. Have a wonderful Shabbos, and thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Malcolm Holmline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us Fridays, 740 Eastern Time here at JM in the AM.